And please turn in your Bibles once again to Isaiah chapter 53. I have the three verses that will be our focus there on the insert. I will read, though, all of chapter 53. You remember this is the fourth of uh, the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, the most magnificent of all of them. Isaiah 53 stands as one of the most important Christological passages in all of the Bible. It was written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before the time of Christ. Yes, that's 700 years before the time that Jesus came. And the original audience who would have first heard this message from Isaiah would have gathered a general strength for sure, a courage that God would provide for them deliverance, but they wouldn't have known uh, the particular ways in which this prophecy spells out who the Messiah was exactly. It's a tremendous passage that over the years has uh, been woven throughout various messages and sermons and uh, times of the year that we would study uh, about Christ. It goes to this passage, yet written 700 years before the time Jesus actually came. It's the servant of Jehovah, who's the anointed one, anointed to be the substitute for God's people, the righteous substitute for God's people. The anointed one means Messiah, derived in the Hebrew. Messiah, in Greek, is Christ. This week, our focus is on, once again, the servant of Jehovah as our righteous sacrifice, and in this passage, we're going to gather a bit of what the resolve of Messiah was like in his suffering, yet another angle, another layer on what Jesus has done for us. Here as I read God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word, I will read Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their, hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we cherish this text. It communicates the central theme of the Bible, the forgiveness of our sins because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, the taking away of our unrighteousness and the gaining of Christ's righteousness. Lord, give us spiritual eyes to see and soft hearts to understand the depth, the depth of your grace so that we might be strengthened to serve you from a place of deep love and gratitude. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Here we have in Isaiah 53, the most important message of the Bible. It's not the only place this message appears, but certainly in the Old Testament, it is the most vivid to this point. Isaiah Isaiah 53 reveals who the servant of Jehovah would be. Servant... Isaiah 53 shows who the servant was and why he had come. Isaiah 53 reveals what the servant would do in particular. Isaiah 53 reveals what we must rely upon or believe in to be saved, the finished work of Christ for us. And here in the passage before us, we get a bit of the mindset of Messiah himself. Now, before Isaiah prophesies this chapter, there had been revelation given by God about our righteous substitute who was coming for us. Isaiah 53 gives it in vivid detail, but no mistake, the Bible tells us before Isaiah 53 what God would do to save us. Back in Genesis 3.15, right from the beginning, right after the fall of man, he promises to send the seed of the woman, who's Jesus, to crush the head of Satan, and while he's crushing Satan's head, his heel would be bruised. That was a picture of the sacrifice that the seed of the woman, Messiah, would have to make to undo what Adam did. So we have from the get-go a picture of the Messiah, the anointed one to come. Of course, the story of Abraham. You remember when he was told to sacrifice his son, and God stops him from sacrificing his son and gives a substitute instead. A picture of how God would, in fact, have to sacrifice his own son, and that son would be our substitute. So there's revelation there in the Bible already about what would be necessary for us to be right with God, for sinners to be made righteous. Then during the time of Moses and the sacrificial system, all those different laws about the sacrifices, but in particular the Passover, the Passover lamb, who would be slain as our substitute, at least the picture of our substitute, and the blood of the lamb would represent the blood of Jesus. It had to be on the doorpost so that the the angel of the Lord would come over and only those uh, who were covered with the blood would be saved a picture of the sacrifice for us made by God. Then when Christ came, he fulfilled to the letter all that Isaiah predicted about his lineage, his virgin birth, his miracles, in climactic form, his substitutionary death here depicted in Isaiah 53. And this is why when John the Baptist, for as rough as he was, he knew prophecy. And so what does he say right when he sees Jesus for the first time? says in John chapter 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, 
and uses the language from Isaiah 53. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Clear is the substitutionary death of Christ for us so that we could be forgiven our sins. Last week we started to look at the particular ways that Jesus suffered for us in our place, enduring the penalty that we should receive, enduring the penalty we deserve so that we could be right with God and God's justice upheld, his righteousness upheld, because his wrath is poured out, but it's poured out on his son instead of us. Our righteous substitute, that's his, his penal substitution. It's a, with penalty he substitutes for us. Now, we come to verses 7, 8, and 9. More of Jesus' suffering, but now the mindset or the resolve that Jesus had while accomplishing this mission. We see more of his suffering in verse 7 than in verse 8, his death, the end result of that suffering, and the final payment, and then his burial, which, of course, leads us into or sets us up for the last verses next week, which is Palm Sunday. The mindset of the servant of Jehovah on display for us, it gives us a richer, deeper appreciation for the grace that we've been saved by. When you contemplate what Christ did for us, his, his resolve, the way he endured what he endured, you'll all the more love Jesus for what he has done. Alec uh, Martyr, who wrote a commentary that I quote often, summarized well what is meant by the mindset of the servant of Jehovah. I have that quote for you on your insert. He wrote, The servant's tongue and mind were alike disciplined to say an unequivocal yes to injustice and to a death that he did not deserve. The passage before us has his suffering, his death, and his burial, his submissiveness, his innocence, and the injustice of what was done to him for us. Let's look first at his suffering in verse 7. There's much here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In verse 7 and in verse 8, there's reference to his being oppressed. Jesus was pressed and pressed and pressed from the time he was born. Um, Right at his birth, his parents had to flee because Herod threatened to kill. When he went public with his ministry, as soon as the religious leaders knew who he was and what he claimed, they looked for ways to trip him up and have him arrested and and removed. They were threatened by his teaching. They were threatened by people drawing away from them and to him. And so they oppressed from the time they had opportunity. But this passage is speaking of something even more particular, the oppression immediate around his passion, around that last week of his life, as Isaiah 53 points to his death on the cross, that week that we look forward to contemplating starting next Sunday with Palm Sunday. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He passively endured the punishment described in Isaiah 53. He allowed for it. He obeyed God's mission by passively allowing for this to occur to himself. Yes, the Jews did their dirty work and the Romans did their dirty work. He was oppressed by both, wrongly judged by both, but allowed for this as part of God's plan so that he could make payment. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. Please notice the passivity of Christ in submitting himself to suffer and die for us. We've seen how Jesus functioned as our suffering substitute in the verses just before this, and this continues. But it's his passiveness that I want you to contemplate for a moment. In fact, to fully appreciate his passive obedience, I want you to see this in its totality, what Jesus did for you in his obedience. Last week we learned about penal substitution. It's an important biblical concept, essential to understanding the good news of the gospel. Here is another very important concept that is a bit complex, but follow, and I think you'll understand, and I think this will help you appreciate better what Christ did in his obedience. We typically think of his obedience as his passive obedience, what he does for us on the cross, without question. There's good reason. He, he ratifies the covenant of God's grace in his own blood. But make no mistake, there is another obedience that had to occur before his passive obedience was actualized. It's called his active obedience. This is the obedience that Jesus uh, undertook throughout his life to perfectly keep the law of God. The first Adam failed and sinned against God, disobeyed, and we are sinfully connected to Adam and in Adam unless we are in Christ. Jesus comes as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed at, to keep the law perfectly, to in no way sin against God. So that when it comes time for him to lay his life down, he has actively obeyed God, unlike the first Adam. And he is therefore the righteous substitute on our behalf. How do we know he's the righteous substitute? Because he sinned not. He actively obeyed God throughout his life and therefore was the worthy sacrifice who could lay his life down passively. He actively obeyed and he passively obeyed. Now, most of the gospel accounts, half of them, refer to this last week of his life for good reason. It's where he, he activates, if you will, he brings God's grace, he redeems us. But he could not have redeemed us if he were not first actively obeying God in our behalf. He represents us in both. This is the point. And this is what makes his passive obedience so rich when you realize how much went into this. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. He allowed for this to occur to fulfill God's mission for him to save us from our sins. Now, for you to fully appreciate what happens when Christ saves us. I want you to see this in its fullness because lots of Christians think of the forgiveness of sins only when they think of what it is that Christ provides for us at the cross. In other words, we have this terrible sin debt, Jesus pays for it, now we don't owe anymore. But that's only half of it. Because of his active obedience, his righteousness is also credited to us. His active obedience becomes the obedience that is ours so that God gives us eternal life. This is the best way I can describe it. In 2011, after my father went to glory, we decided that mom, it would be best if mom came live with us. And we're trying to figure out what would be the best arrangement. We thought the best arrangement would be to build her like an apartment or a, a home next to our home so we could live close to each other, but we'd both get our distance because we both need it, right? Well, we found a place that had a commercial-grade uh, commercial garage that could be turned in. So sometimes if my mother sends you an email, it'll say, from the, the garage lady. We're not abusive of our mother. This is a very expensive garage she lives in. I just want you to know. <laughs> but the point is, we, re, uh, we 
basically redesigned it to be an apartment for her to live next to us. Now, at that time, we had another house in Olathe that, that we were going to sell, but the market was terrible at that time. And someone said, hey, you should rent it out for a little while longer until it, it uh, grows in uh, value a bit, and then you could sell it, and then, then you'll be able to pay you know, for this apartment we were building. I, didn't, I thought it made sense. I saw why it made sense, but I did not like we had almost 20 grand on this equity line that I kept seeing in my bank account every, every, every month, and I didn't like it even more than that sometimes, and it just ate at me that I had this debt. I did not like this debt. And so it took us a while, a couple years of, of uh, renters, and we paid a little of it down, but you know how that goes. And so we finally sold the house, and I made 35 grand on it. So immediately I transferred. It was a, the second I got that certified check and it cleared, I transferred the 20 grand over and paid the debt. Guess what else, though? For a little while, I had 15 grand more in it. I didn't just pay the debt off. I then had 15 grand to my credit. When Christ died for us, he didn't just take away your debt. He gave you his righteousness. He gave you his credit. Amen? So we didn't just get our sins taken away. We had his righteousness accounted to us. And we'll see that more in the next section. But fully appreciate Christ's obedience is full-orbed. It's not only that he laid himself down to die for us and kept his mouth quiet while he did it. It's all of it combined becomes our benefit in Christ. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, I want you to notice that just because he doesn't open his mouth doesn't mean he's not in control. And that's hard for us to understand because today we live in in a time when verbal aggressiveness towards people is highly valued. People think it's great. They celebrate it. If you go on YouTube and you just type in destroys, you won't get a series of buildings that get knocked down. You'll get a series of people's verbal onslaughts against people they disagree with. For instance, put in destroys on YouTube and you'll get student destroys feminist teacher with the facts. Ben Shapiro destroys everybody, compilation three. Shep Smith destroys Devin Nunez. Bernie Sanders destroys Republicans over Trump care. John Stewart destroys Bill O'Reilly. D'Souza destroys leftist college student arguments. James White destroys papal infallibility. Even religious people are destroying other people verbally, apparently. And to be fair, even Adrian Rogers is credited with refuting total depravity and destroying Calvinism. We, we laugh a bit, but you know, it's unfortunate language. Destroys mean to make a verbal argument against something that in the mind of someone completely discredits the opposing view. Verbal prowess is equated with strength and smarts. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was a show of power, not a show of weakness. Jesus did not need to verbally destroy anyone, though he could have. He could accomplish his purpose just the way he did, and he did. The silence of Christ is one of the greatest proofs of his deity. As one commentator said, the Lord did not perform for man's convenience. He did nothing for a show. 
to answer their accusations would have been servile. The Lord knew his accusers were false witnesses, and no matter what he said to them, their witness would remain false. By remaining silent, the Lord Jesus, in his passive obedience, was actually steering the situation to its intended result, his suffering and death for our sins, which was the Father's will for him. Silence here was passive outwardly, but it was powerful in reality. Paul writes in describing why we can have humility with one another. He writes of the example of Christ in this, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One more important note about this matter of his passive and active obedience. I love what Lorraine, what Lorraine Bettner wrote about this. On the basis of any teaching that is rightfully called Christian, the active and passive obedience of Christ emerges as the only basis of our spiritual and eternal life. Since the demand that sin must be punished was met by him in his representative capacity, justice was not injured, and since his life of perfect obedience to the moral law was also rendered in his representative capacity, the gift of spiritual cleansing and of eternal life is now conferred upon his people is their right and privilege. He saves them from hell and establishes them in heaven. There is no blessing in this world or the next for which they should not give Christ thanks. And Christ endured this for us, even death on a cross. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was, from a human perspective, a miscarriage of justice, but it was no mistake from the divine perspective. As Ray Ortland so wonderfully writes, his death was not a capitulation to weakness, but an exercise in deliberate control. One of the reasons that Christians can endure the inevitable sufferings that we will undergo as believers at some point and in some way comes from what Jesus provides as an example. Now, what he provides first and foremost is the substance of our justification. His death is not an example first and foremost. But secondarily, it does provide for us a picture of how God will provide for us when he calls us to something, even if it means suffering. Peter, of all people, you remember Peter in his life, in his shakiness before the resurrection. After this, he's a different person. And listen to what he writes in his first epistle under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For to this you have been called, he's talking to Christians, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's exactly quoting from Isaiah without saying it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is what Jesus did in fulfilling the mission God had for him. Then Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Directly integrating Isaiah 53, Isaiah, and telling us how we can endure suffering as our Lord has. Now, let's continue. Verse 8, and you'll see the finality of his suffering is his death. Moves from his general suffering to his death. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, 
Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Now, believe it or not, the passage here is actually quite complex and complicated in the original language. I think the ESV does a great job of bringing out the best way of understanding this passage. Very simply, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is a continuation on the thought from verse 7 that he had been oppressed, wrongly oppressed, by the powerful, by those who were the religious leaders, by Rome. And ultimately, that oppression led to a judgment, an official judgment against him, a judgment that led to his execution and death. He was taken away and killed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that is, he was killed, he died, stricken for the transgression of my people. That second part of verse 8 refers to those who were there observing his ministry, his earthly ministry, who had heard him speak and teach and preach over and over. He forecasted that he would have to commit himself to death. Yet, when the people saw it, what did the disciples primarily do? They ran. They scattered. It was only towards the end that they realized he's going to die, and they didn't really fully understand why. In fact, that's the point here. His generation, who considered this thing that he did, his death, this death that he would commit, that he would commit himself to, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, back to verse 4, 5, and 6, that he would be the substitute to die for the sins of his people. The people in his immediate moment didn't get it. They didn't understand it. You could argue that the disciples didn't really get it until Jesus rose again from the dead. That's when the purpose for it all made sense to them. His purpose was to be the sacrificial substitute for his people, yet the generation didn't get it. This is why John writes in his gospel, the first chapter, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Back to verse 8. Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. The disciples didn't see it until Jesus rose again from the dead. Then they started to understand the totality of all. In fact, back to Peter. Peter's easy to pick on because he's so much like most of us. We want, you know, I like to align with Paul, but we're really more like Peter in most cases. And here's Peter who was scared. He was scared of the servant girl, you know, before when Jesus was was arrested. He was scared of the servant girl and didn't want to say that he was with him. He even used a swear word to, to say he didn't know Jesus. That's the Peter we're talking about here. He scattered. What did he do after Jesus died on the cross? He went back to fishing. I mean, that shows you he didn't get this. Yet, when Jesus rose again from the dead, it all made sense. God's plan for his suffering and his death. And it says beautifully in the book of Acts, the same Peter now is preaching with boldness. And in Acts chapter 2, he's telling the Jews that they are culpable or guilty for what happened to Christ. At the same time, telling them the truth about the death of Jesus. Listen to how it reads. Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What a difference in his understanding of the suffering and the death now of Christ. Listen to the whole verse. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by hands of law, the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection set him free to understand what the work on the cross meant, and it made him understand we are guilty for this death that he died, yet it's the plan of God. This is the gospel. This is, when we get that, that means we understand. That means we, we're not blaming someone else on the death. It's for us. But yet it was God's plan for this that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed. Jesus paid for our sins with his suffering and his death. His death finalized his full payment for our sins. His resurrection affirms the payment was accepted. So it's the whole complex that redeems us. But with his death ends his humiliation. But his burial does tell us something. His burial tells us still what was understood about him by those immediately. And it helps us appreciate what he did for us. Look at verse 9 as it refers to his burial. An incredible amount of detail, considering this is 700 years before. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now that wants to point... Isaiah wants to point out to us that he was not given an honorable burial. Now, I'll I'll speak to that in a moment. And this is strangely ironic given the fact that he had done no violence, verse 9 says, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't deserve to die in a place of dishonor or be buried in a place of dishonor. This is another challenging passage, but I think the ESV helps us if we just read it at face value. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. I think that's the best reading. What What does it mean? He was not taken to a special religious tomb or ancestral burial site like people of religious honor in Israel would have been buried. When important Jews died, they were buried in special places. Think back to Sarah, to Abraham, to Joseph, and others. Rather, he was buried in a regular place, not a sacred place. Now, it might have been of a nice place as far as the world looked at it, and it was. How, where was he buried? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who who looked upon what happened with Christ and we're told um, had some sense of uh, of compassion for the situation. We don't know how much Joseph held to. Uh, But he donates his own personal, hewn-out, expensive grave to put Jesus in. So Jesus wouldn't be buried with the rest of the Jews or in uh, some place of dishonor with the poor. He would be taken to a place where the rich were buried. He wouldn't be buried among those who were sympathetic to his message. In fact, among those who probably were responsible for his death. Oswald, who comments on this passage, says, He's not even buried with the poor, who had been his most faithful companions, but is surrounded in death by some of those whose sins he had carried, but who had oppressed and despised him. Buried without religious honor, yet he was entirely innocent of any sin. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, we know this is another act of God's providence. Even though it might have been viewed as a secular burial, which would not have been honorable to the Son of God, that rich tomb also would carry with it security and an ability to confirm that he really rose. Although he'd done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, innocent of sin in both deed and word, Matir says, This shows the total guiltlessness of the servant in neither outward behavior nor inner person, in neither deed nor word, could a charge be justly leveled. Succinctly, 
he is accorded that moral majesty essential in a true substitute for sinners. Even his burial confirms his innocence. You know, it's an interesting tie-in that you might have caught speaking of Jesus and having no deceit in his mouth. Do you remember back in earlier in Isaiah when we were studying this book where such a connection is made between sin of the mouth and the sin of the person? Here it is, Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And guess what? He's not alone. Because he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In verse 9, second part. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Calvin said, he never offended in deed or word that this that. This cannot be said of any mortal man is universally acknowledged, and hence it follows that it applies to Christ alone. We've seen again more of the suffering of the servant in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, even into his death and his burial. Once again, we've been exposed to the gospel. That's what we've been exposed to. The gospel is this. We are sinners who have rightly merited God's wrath and anger. Jesus came as our righteous substitute and endured God's penalty in our place. We not only have our sins forgiven because of Christ in his saving work, but we receive his righteousness and all the blessed benefits that come from this into eternity. To be right with God, you must trust in the finished work of Christ as described in this chapter. And this message has been reaching people for millennia. This is what evangelism is. Declare what the gospel is, as it's written for us here in Isaiah 53 and throughout Scripture. I want you to turn to one last passage to bring this sermon to a close. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts 8. It's page 916 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 8. A little background before we start reading. You remember, I am sure, being the good listeners that you are, early on we covered a portion of Isaiah's prophecy where there were woes to the nations around Israel. He was giving woes to Israel that they needed to repent and trust in his deliverance, turn away from their sin and to him. But he also then didn't leave out the nations. He spoke to Assyria, he spoke to Egypt, and there were like 15 different nations. One of them was Cush, the Cushites. And he spoke a word of the gospel to the Cushites like he did the other nations. Now, you think the Cushites heard him? Were they aware that this prophet from Israel was talking about them? Well, 700 years later, in a divine appointment, you have one of the disciples who become an apostle, Philip. He's prompted by the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel clear, I should say it this way, to bring gospel clarity to a certain individual. By the time of Jesus, 700 years after Isaiah, Cush had become Ethiopia. Ethiopia was the old kingdom of Cush, and it was governed by a dynasty of queens called Candaces. Candace is like Pharaoh. Now, with that background, look at Acts, Acts chapter 6, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, verse 26 and following. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Philip's thinking, why am I going here? And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. This is a guy who is a higher up from the former kingdom of Cush, who is there. What's he there for? Why is Philip talking to him? Check this out. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. How? Why? What would make him come to Jerusalem to worship? How could this this person from Cush, a pagan nation, why would he come to Jerusalem to worship? And was returning. So he had come to worship and he's coming back. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now I wish all evangelism was like this. But look what happens. So Philip, as any of us would, even us Presbyterians, we would have run to him, just like it says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said to him, how can I, unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Most likely he had a Greek version. It would have been the common version of the Old Testament that he was reading. And Philip knows and hears it. That's Isaiah 53. From a Cushite who's going to Jerusalem. How do you know to go to Jerusalem? And the eunuch said to Philip, Again, I wish it was like this every time, brothers and sisters, but it's more like this than we want to acknowledge, I think, if we would just tell the gospel. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. What is the gospel? It is the good news about Jesus. What good news? Jesus suffered and died and was raised again for us so that we could be forgiven our sins and credited with his righteousness, that we might live abundant life with him forever. You must trust Christ. You must rest in his finished work. You must believe in him. And brothers and sisters, if we are Christians, we must tell people the gospel. Let us pray. Lord God, what an amazing grace that you have exercised to save us through Christ and his perfect finished work. Lord, we... Love this picture of evangelism that expresses evangelism expressing the good news. Fill us with great joy in believing on Christ. Empower us to live lives that are free to obey you and bold to proclaim Christ. We thank you for this good news that your word declares and that your spirit attends. Lord, make us faithful evangelists to proclaim this good news as depicted so clearly in Isaiah 
fulfilled in Jesus and said over and over again throughout the Bible. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.